Welcome to Capital Close Up on WKXLA and FM 102.9 in Concord and 101.9 in the great city of Manchester, New Hampshire. We're podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're listening by podcast on some digital personal device, please make sure to subscribe, like us, tell your friends so we keep on growing our podcast. We're brought to you today by the Capital Center for the Arts in Concord, New Hampshire. Two great venues with great shows going on. Check out their website at ccanh.com. You'll like it. Well, I really am looking forward to the conversation we're about to have this morning because I'm going to be talking with a guy who makes me look lazy. I've always thought that, you know, I was a guy who had a lot going on. But next to our guest, Bob Lord, I am just a lazy lay around guy who doesn't do very much because Bob is a multifaceted, multi-talented producer, composer, bassist, um, named in 2015 as one of the of Musical America's 30 Professionals of the Year key influencers. He is CEO, believe it or not, folks, of a Grammy award-winning record company in New Hampshire. That's right. A Grammy award-winning record company lives in New Hampshire. Uh, since 2005, he's been the music director for the New Hampshire Public Radio music hall series, Writers on a New England Stage. Uh, he wrote the theme music for NHPR's morning show, The Exchange, uh, which aired from 2005 until the show ended in 2021. He is the newly elected chair of the board of trustees of the music hall, the first musician to occupy the position. He's president of the Zagreb Festival Orchestra in Zagreb, and serves on the advisory board of the Portsmouth Symphony Orchestra. He lives on New Hampshire's seacoast. He's got two cats, and he runs a business with lots of employees all over the globe. Bob Lord, welcome to Capital Close-Up. I am exhausted already. Thank you very much. <laughs> so wait, let, let's go back to the beginning. I mean, I, I met you when, when I was a lawyer. Um, I, I had, I used to joke and say to folks that I was the only entertainment lawyer north of Boston. And for a while, that was probably true. There, there was, as far as I knew, nobody really practicing entertainment law. And I was, um, as a musician and, 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 and guy in the arts, I was interested and I hadn't landed in New York or LA, but there I was in Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, making a career. And among the people I worked with was Bob Lord. He was, he was a, a young guy. He was, he was in his twenties. He, he had a band, he had a band called Dreadnought, a prog rock band. And as I recall, um, they were, Bob, Bob was an ambitious guy, a great bass player. The band was wonderful, still is 25 years or more later. And I don't remember how we met, but I think, Bob, you you came to me for representation. I did. And that's got to be uh, over 20 years ago now. And, and it's amazing um, to think back and, and look at how much time has passed. But I, I got to tell you that, you know, our 
uh, collaboration back in those days really was um, instrumental in kind of setting off the chain of events that you just rattled off at the beginning of this <laughs> this program. All these different responsibilities that I have now, all this this great work I've done, all this great stuff that I'm I mean I'm privileged to be able to uh, to work on. Um, in many ways, you know, it's your fault. So. I, I, I thank you for that. But when we first why, met, why is it my why is it my <laughs> fault? What did I, what did I do? Well, you know, before I met you, and I think um, there aren't. You're correct. There were not a lot of guys like you up in this neck of the woods. Uh, well, there aren't a lot of guys like you anywhere in the world. Let's be honest. But but especially at that time, when you're looking for somebody who can offer you some advice regarding, um, you know, what to do next in this crazy business, which is called music. Uh, there are a few places to to go, and and you were one of them. Um, you you kind of been there and done that in terms of being a musician, being in the theater, being involved in law, um, and really having like the kind of total package of of wisdom to help me out at that time. And I think it's a bridge that not many people ever cross. So a lot of guys in my position, they start a band, they play in college, they play some gigs, they make a few hundred bucks, they drink some beers, and then somehow it just doesn't quote unquote happen. What I learned from, from you, from my dad, from my, my colleagues over the years, from the people I've collaborated with my whole life is um, nothing happens by accident. Things don't just happen. You need to have uh, a plan and a strategy for it. And when I began to think about, well, how do I get to the next step with my band? How do I attract a record label? How do I attract interest? Because, you know, as a young musician, my thinking, of course, is my music is the best. I am a genius. Everyone should invest in me. All of the, the record labels should be wanting to sign me and my band. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's a very different process going about getting a, a record label deal than, than that. And we did. But it was we also it was also a different time. Oh, I mean, back then the music business was really different. There were there were record companies signing signing bands. A, a completely different market. And, and I think the uh, the DIY aesthetic that kind of percolated in the late 80s in Washington that just was a through line all the way through, you know, grunge and all this stuff. Um, I think it took a long time for that to turn into what we see now, which is this kind of this environment where everybody's their own manager, their own rep, their own publicist, their own publisher and all the rest. But back then, yeah, it was about how do we get through the gatekeepers? How do we actually get to people who can make decisions and are going to want to listen to the music? Um, and that's when I came to you. And, and this is something I, I talk about quite a bit when I do um, talks at universities or uh, I, I give lectures or, or consultations is I tell them a story about how um, how that contract happened. And, and really, in a nutshell, Paul, if you remember correctly, it's crazy, but we had this Italian record label that wanted to sign us to do a live album and uh, basically like a live in the studio record. And, and I brought it to you and we went through the contract line by line and you taught me a whole ton about uh, law during those days. And we got to one portion of the contract that was for the creative clause. And I said, Paul, what's this? And you said, oh, well, you know, this is the part of the contract where the label gets to say, well, we can dictate up to X amount of the repertoire. So anyway, I, I said, Paul, I'm not comfortable with this. And you said to me, and I won't use the exact words you said, but you said, you got crap for prospects. You got crap for money. You can't even afford to pay me. So um, I think you should you should consider signing this deal. He said, okay. So we signed the deal and it was the right thing to do, right? But then we get the phone call from the record label, the email saying, hey, listen, we think we could sell more records if you did a track by Frank Zappa. And I remember coming back to you and saying, you know, Paul, I love Frank Zappa, but I thought this was about my music and my band's music. And you're like, yeah, I think you got to do it. It's in the contract, you know? Okay, great, great, great. So next, uh, next week, this happens again. We get another email from the label and they said, Hey, listen, we were thinking we could sell more records if you did a tune by the Grateful Dead. 
And at that point, you know, I'm like, okay, I don't really love the dead. And anyway, it happened a third time. And I came back, and I came back to you and I sat in your office, right? We were in, we were in the Dover, Dover office actually at the time. And uh, I said, Paul, I'm not happy. I'm the artist. I should have complete artistic control. And you looked at me and you, you raised one eyebrow and you said, you signed the contract? And I said, yeah, I signed the contract. And we said, did you sign the check? Or did you cash the check? Forgive me. And I said, yeah, I cashed the check. And you said, well, you're screwed. And you didn't say you're screwed, but you said you're screwed. And it was in that one moment when I, I realized that the thing that you chase for so long, sometimes is not the thing that you think that it, it really is. And uh, I would say again, you know, um, Paul Hodes, you, you definitely um, helped bring me from being a dude who played in a band and to being a guy who um, was in the music industry in that 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 sequence of events. So I, I thank you, and it's great to talk to you. <laughs> you can you can thank me or blame me one way or the <laughs> Both. other. Yeah, it's my fault. But you know, wh I mean, what's what's interesting is that that experience compared to a lot of what uh, the record industry used to be about and may still be was pretty mild. Absolutely. I mean, it was pretty pretty mild. You got it. You you were an, a no ball band with no money, no you know nowhere. Nothing. This Italian label wanted to pick you up, and and they you know in the contract said, well they're 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 making they're paying for it. They get to tell you what to do. I mean, I represented I represented numbers of people whose stories were were much more frightening. Um, I represented a New Hampshire artist named Mighty Sam McLean for a long time. And, and, and mighty Sam uh, had been a big hit maker in the sixties who never saw a penny. Um, so the record business has always been a den of thieves and crooks and liars. And um, it's it, the music business uh, is about music, but the business side has tended to turn music into just another commodity and when we we think about the music business today it's really changed a lot but how did you how did you go from being a bassist and a composer to being the ceo of a company a big company uh by some standards uh possibly one of if not the biggest classical music organizations in the country by some by some metrics uh when we take a look at what we've turned this this company into um it's something extraordinary i think uh how well geez it's kind of like being the the frog in the pot right and then then, then the heat gets turned on and next thing you know bit by bit it's kind of getting warm in here um i would say it's a very organic evolution uh and i was you know a booking agent and run independent record labels and had all kinds of um, stuff on the business side of music right from the very beginning. I think it was always an interest to me. I, I always felt that I wanted to be in control. I'm an only child, you know, uh, of course it's uh, of Italian descent. So of course it's going to come naturally to me. And, and as you said before, you know, it's, it's one of these things where um, the rug burns, could, the burns could have been a lot worse. I got rug burns from my contracts. I never got any kind of third degree scorching like you described with guys like my, mighty Sam, which was so common. Um, but you know that little bit of feeling what it what what it felt like you know to understand that it made me realize that that wasn't the way i wanted to do business and so bit by bit by bit um starting parma which was now 14 years ago was very much the outgrowth of my work uh as a, um you know the the business guy behind the band my band dreadnought which I still have also uh, being a part of all these other kind of custom audio jobs that i was doing as a young composer you mentioned uh, the theme song from the exchange but a lot of independent films and ad agency work. And there was a lot of work that I did where 
I had to figure out how to interpret non-musical terms to achieve a musical result, right? And, and the classic example is working with a director who just says, and this is true, I've heard it before, right? Hey man, listen, sounds great, but if you could make it like a little bit more green, that would be great, you know? Okay, <laughs> how do you translate right, right. that into, into action? Uh -huh. So I learned how to become this kind of Rosetta Stone um, of the, the business side and the music side and speaking a musical language and a non-musical language. I think the second thing that happened is I really fell in love um, with classical music and, you know, when you described before the, the, the business of music, you know, and versus, let, let's say, the art of music, which is where you're, you're kind of leaning there, they're two very different things. And, and classical music has traditionally been um, a market which is, of course, much more focused on art than commerce in many ways, but not, not wholly. Um, so it seemed to me to be an interesting place to work. I, I, I just love, uh, I'd fallen in love with orchestral music and symphonic composition. It seemed to me then and still now almost like the ultimate, really. The, the ultimate um, canvas, the ultimate palette, uh, and, and something really beautiful can be made out of it. So that was that was another part of it. And really, I think the last thing was um, starting a business in 2008, when the economy completely crashed, uh, and coming out of my experience as a music producer and trying to figure out, well, how do I make this a goer? How do I really do what I want to do? And at the very beginning, I had it in my mind that I wanted both the kind of production company of providing, you know, recording services, release services. Now it's into, um, you know, filming, live streaming, editing, uh, publishing, all kinds of intellectual property rights it's expanded substantially. But, but to do that and also be a record label at the same time, um, wow, you know, I, I thought about it and I just had to get there. Uh, the growth has been really organic. I would say everything has been in concentric circles. We started off with nothing and just poco a poco, as we would say, um, have built up the team. So whenever we got too busy to do anything ourselves and we would just begin to hire out and add it onto the team. So the process of me, this only child, control freak, bass player, band, prog rock playing dude, um, letting go control, right? And, and step by step by step, delegating and having to not only learn how to delegate and to manage it, but to have it have a successful outcome. Um, that's been a huge part in, in this whole organization. And, I, and the last thing I would say is I am absolutely thankful every single day. No joke. Uh, I've had the same management crew, six of us for like 10, 12 years. Um, the staff that we have at this company, we're about 40 something folks in five countries. Um, extraordinary staff. I mean, unbelievable. Every morning I wake up and I say, these guys are the hardest working team in, in quote unquote showbiz. And, and mm -hmm. I mean it. Uh, and it's so, so hard work is what it comes down to. And as my pop always said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And, so uh, and here let, I am now. Let me ask you this. Um, I, I started a record company called Big Round Records. Um, I started the company back in, believe it or not, 1986. When I was recording, um, I decided to go out and Pego, my wife Pego and I were playing rock and roll for kids and families, and we decided to uh, do something different for kids music, and there we were. I remember being in the studio. We went to a really good studio, and uh, somebody said, well, what are you going to do with this? I said, well, we're going to figure out how to put it out, and, and, and the next thing I knew, I had... Uh, I said, I need a record company. So I started one called Big Round Records <laughs> and I filed it and, you know, and there, there you had it. And, and at the time, uh, so I went to a studio to record it. I had to figure out how to find a graphic artist to do the cover uh, for the record. I had to pay uh, and find a producer. I had to um, get the sound engineer. And then 
once I figured out uh, how to do this new thing called CDs, which were relatively new and also make vinyl, which has now made a comeback, then I had to go figure out how I was going to get the record sold or distributed and had to find a different distributor. And I had to go to, you know, 12 different places to figure out how to take my music from my brain onto tape into a CD and then get it out into the world. And uh, it, it, it was like, you know, as I said, 12 places at once. Yeah. You chose to start a label with a very different model. Um, talk to me a little bit about that model and, 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 and how you came up with a model, which was basically providing a, a, a sort of in-house service um, for classical musicians who had, who had at the time really nowhere to go to get their stuff recorded. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, let's go back a step to what you said earlier about um, the, the changes in the model in the industry. Back then, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there were record labels throwing money at bands saying they look a little bit like Nirvana. Let me, let me, let me go see if I can make some money on it. Um, those budgets have gone completely out the window as we've seen the, the, the profits from physical product, which were high margin items back in the old days. As those have shrunk, then um, it's become a much different market environment. So uh, that was on the one side here, whereas there's a, a drain of, of available funds to just simply take a chance anymore in the music industry. Um, second thing is, you know, I don't like being told what to do. And I, I think frequently about that deal with the Italian record label. And again, it, it was one of these small little things in life that you, you remember and you say, hmm, you know, that's a good lesson. And I don't love it when I go out to dinner and somebody else orders for me. I don't love having something put in front of me that I didn't have a hand in selecting because I don't know if I'm going to like it. I'd rather pay for my own meal. I'd rather eat my own food. I'd rather be the guy in control. And I think that for a lot of artists, that realization um, has come because of the environment in which we live and work right now. In the old days, it was only about, hey, listen, I want to get signed. I want to get a budget. I want someone else to pay to put me on the road. I want someone else to pay for the record. And I don't care what I have to give up to get it. But those times are just radically different now. So from my perspective, looking at classical musicians who had been, I think, mistreated for so long, um, generally speaking, you know, not really uh, engaged as far as, let's say, living composers go, right? We talk about not performers, but living composers, I mean, you know, there's still so many or still so many orchestras playing all the old dead white guys from Europe. And right there was where I thought, um, here's a space where I can help. Here's a space where I can offer some control and where I can minimize risk for myself and for the artist. So that's where it all began. And so you you basically invented uh, a, a very different model, a model that kind of looks like a record company of the old school. It, you know, I mean, you've got now, what, a thousand releases? I mean, it just a huge number of releases, beautifully designed packaging, uh, great publicity, terrific distribution. Um, it's the complete thing. And, and in some ways, it, it gives the artist the power because you work with the artist to realize their vision, but minimizing the risk for the record company, you're not necessarily plowing all the money into it. You're working with the artist. 
So let's fast forward. It's sometime in the 2000s. I'm headed off to Congress. Uh, you know, Bob, I was kind of an accidental congressman because I had to get the newspapers to stop calling me a kiddie rock star because Pego and I had made rock and roll for kids and families that a lot of now aged adults with kids of their own and grandkids remember uh, and took their kids to. But I had started this record company called Big Round Records, and I was going off to Congress and I didn't want to... Um, to have any conflicts of interest. And I was divesting myself of this and that and the other thing. And my recollection is I called you up and said, Bob, I'm going to Congress. I have this record company. I think I need to give it to you. And I think I gave you the record company, right? Yeah. Well, technically speaking, we are we are still partners. And uh, and it's nice. I think to it's know. Pego. Actually, Pego. Oh, is Pe still, oh, forgive me. You're right. Pe because you yeah, right. Pego is a partner in in your in, in big round records. Right? And, and, and what's so wonderful is that like it, it was so thrilling to see a, a politician actually divest from his interests. Right. Like many, many today. So we'll just leave it at that. But yeah, yeah. it's uh, you know, it, it's really interesting to hear your, your whole story of why you started Big Round Records in the first place, because, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, clearly. Uh, and at that time, there was no way to do the types of things that you needed to have done. And um, this environment that we're in right now with music, where the world is everyone's oyster and everyone is a star of their own show, uh, it's liberating because it's flattened the playing field, I think, for, for many people and allowed a lot of great music to be heard that would never have been heard otherwise. On the other hand, the signal to noise ratio is absolutely massive. And it makes it all the more important that when you're working on a project or when you're working with an artist or, or any creative, that you're really thinking through the reasons why you're doing it, not just to do it, but what's the reason, what's the purpose, what's the function. And if that function is simply to have a great time, then so be it. And uh, I'll tell you, Paul, I've, I've offered a lot of people advice, which is um, if, if you really love music, maybe you don't want to go into it for work. Maybe you don't want to go into it because it's a very difficult space to enter and and to, um, to succeed. So uh, it's one of those things that it's a delicate balance. And I see a lot of it every single day. Hmm. So let's talk about some of the projects that you've worked on. Um, as I recall, I recall talking to you about a guy named Townsend, uh, first name Townsend, comma, Peter. And I remember talking to you about working with him. How did that come about? What did you do? What was that like working with Peter Townsend, the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy from The Who? Well, there's been a, a few experiences in my life with, which have just been just, you know, dreams come true, really. And I'm the luckiest guy in the world in that I have been able to work with artists of such an incredible caliber who um, I've admired for such a long time, Pete, Pete being one of them. Uh, the whole reason why I became a musician in the first place was because of The Who, because I heard Pete Townsend, because I, I heard John Entwistle. I was lucky enough to play a gig with my band Dreadnought and John Entwistle right before he died, actually, which was amazing, an amazing experience for a young musician to be able to say, hey, listen, <laughs> this guy's my hero, and uh, and now we're trading licks, which was so cool. And in working with Pete, uh, that was about 10 years ago. We put out an album in 2012 called Method Music, which is a continuation of his... Lifehouse project, which was um, the aborted Who project that turned into Who's Next. So one of Pete's greatest failures was also basically his greatest success. Uh, you know, all those great tracks on that album, Behind Blue Eyes, We Get Fooled Again, Bob O'Reilly. Um, and working with Pete was, it was so much fun. And I look back on it and I think one of the most wonderful things that came out of it was 
knowing that this man that I've admired musically for so long, um, whose work I've, I've been inspired by, is as seeking and searching as I had always dreamed that he would be. Uh, always looking for something different artistically, always pushing um, musically. And that's a great thing. And, and you know, another great project that I've been lucky enough to do with Parma is uh, I'm the producer of a project called Wild Symphony by Dan Brown, who's the author of The Da Vinci Code. And Dan and I, we've known each other for about 16, 17 years, something like this, and working on music together for about the last six or seven. Um, and working with Dan on this project, which is both a symphonic suite of uh, short pieces of music, which are for orchestra and um, are representative of certain animals. And it's paired with Dan's uh, new children's picture book, illustrated picture book. Um, it's a terrific project. And working with a guy like Dan, um, it really teaches you an awful lot about how things are done uh, in certain circles and what it means to work on a really massive, huge worldwide project. Um, and I would just say that like working with guys like this, Pete, Dan, uh, groups like the London Symphony Orchestra, guys like this, projects like this, it just ups the game of, you know, of you, of me and of the entire company and the entire team. And then to be able to sit back and to say, hey, listen, you know, I've, I've done something which is getting into homes and ears and listeners all over the world um, with guys like Pete and Dan and LSO. That's it's really something um, extraordinary. And like I said before, I'm really grateful that I've been able to work with these, these great artists on these great projects. The, the Wild Symphony is a wonderful, wonderful project. Um, it's published. The book is published in more than 40 countries worldwide. It's a it's a it's a great book. And folks, if you have kids or grandkids of, uh, of a young age and even if you don't, the Wild Symphony is a wonderful experience. Um, you recorded that symphony uh, overseas, and a lot of your work um, has taken you to other other countries. Um, some folks might say, "Well, why don't why don't why aren't you recording in the United States? And why why are you going overseas?" So, how did that start, and where has it taken you and Parma? Well, there's a number of answers to the question. We do record quite a bit in the United States, mainly chamber music, small ensemble or uh, choral music. Symphonic music in the United States is almost impossible produce, uh, to produce due to simply um, cost. It is extremely expensive to, um, to obtain the rights and to get what you need to get. And in fact, um, just to speak plainly about it, you know, in most major metropolitan areas with most orchestras, uh, you will be very hard pressed to get a full, what we would call a buyout, which is the rights of the person who's paying the bill to use in an unfettered, unlimited way, the material which is produced. And that is something which is possible for us to acquire in other territories all over the world. So to go back a little bit to what we talked about before about these issues of control and about um, what I want, right? What, what do I want? What have I always wanted since I was a kid? I want all the control and none of the responsibility. And I think that that's what I seek out uh, on behalf of my artists. That's what I'm trying to make sure that I'm doing with the people I work with, which is to say, hey, listen, I'm going to be sure that everything is right as rain in terms of you're going to get what you need. And by the way, we're going to take care of all of it. So um, in America, it's extremely hard to do in, in some ways. Um, also, there's a different dynamic in America when it comes to symphonic music, for example. We are definitely much more traditional here in terms of what is programmed. And as I mentioned before, we, we still see um, a, a a predominance of the kind of old school classical music on programs. 
And we're doing our very best to change that. We have a wonderful partnership with an organization called All Classical Portland. And we're a part of what's called uh, the Recording Inclusivity Initiative, where they're releasing labels for this project. And, and the, the kind of mantra of the project is, is to change America's playlist, to change what we have been listening to over and over and over again, not only on the radio waves, but also in the, in the concert hall. Um, in Europe, there's a much more dynamic, I think, experimental, forward-looking sense of programming. And I think beyond that, there is something that you can acquire from certain people in certain areas that you can't acquire from others. It's like cuisine. There are certain local specialties all over the world that really they get the right Kung Pao chicken. You know, you really should go to China. Um, but I found this with music as well, where there is a certain characteristic for certain players in certain areas and certain reasons why you want to work with, um, with certain ensembles. And it's those kind of unique elements. For example, uh, wow, the, the just unbelievable musicianship that we found down in Cuba, this kind of hybridization of preparation in classical thinking and training with the improvisation and freewheeling nature of jazz. Or for example, you know, take Russia with this amazing education that has been given to the string players there where there is this lineage of, of string sound, of violin playing that is just built up and up and up over time. And it's these unique kind of qualities of the musicianship that we're always looking out for. Uh, lastly, Paul, I mean, you know, we're, we're looking for, for a good vibe and a good relationship and good fun and good sound and, and a good way to make music. I think it's very, very, very hard to make music when you have a bad vibe. And mm -hmm. I think that it's finding the right collaborators, it's finding the right environment and putting the right people together in the right room at the right time. Um, and that's what we're seeking is always to find what's that right combo and, and how do we get it? And it's taken us to some wild places, that's for sure. And, uh, and I've, I've enjoyed getting to see pockets of the earth I, I never thought that I would get to. So uh, thinking, you know, it, you, we, you were speaking about Russia, you're speaking about Cuba. Uh, I know you've worked in China, Slovakia, Armenia, Croatia, uh, all over, all over the globe now. But I'm curious about your perspective on music, people, and politics when it comes to working in places like Russia, Cuba, and China, where the United States um, has a, a very, very challenging public relationship in terms of the governments and the politics involved. I mean, here we are with Russia about to <laughs> invade Ukraine. And um, you've worked there, and, and we talk about the great musicianship and lineage of the string players, and China is now seen by the United States as its primary global adversary. So what's it like to negotiate, do business, play music, and be in those places as an American at a time of global tension? What a wonderful question. Um, it's so hard to confront the daily realities of just existence in this world. I mean, the minute you begin to pull any thread anywhere, whatever it may be, political, social, a, it just unfurls this just never-ending stream of contradictions, I think is the best way of putting it. And so it's very hard to, um, to reconcile all these things. On the other hand, I think it's incumbent upon musicians and artists to provide the separate parallel track to provide this, uh, this dialogue in these territories. We speak a different language. We're talking about culture and people and humanity 
and and this is what's important to me. So I do believe that it's the responsibility of artists to provide that bridge. I mean, we've seen it time and time and time again over the years um, when cultures have kind of intersected and in in what is it that makes us be able to get along, right? I mean, we take a look back in the 80s and, and the cultural exchanges that happened there with Russia um, probably saved our bacon and more than once thinking about these, these relationships. Um, for me, I have always seen that there is a massive difference between people and governments. Everywhere I go, everywhere I go, people are generally speaking the same. And I think that there's a general acknowledgement in the territories that we work, um, you know, not just some of the more problematic ones, as you said, like Cuba, you know, and, and China and, and, and Russia, but even just other territories in Europe or South America all around, um, people are just trying to live and just trying to survive and just trying to, to live their lives to the fullest. And I think that it's important for musicians, important for artists to be the ones to make those connections and to continue those cultural exchanges. I, I, I just, I can't stress that enough that that's how conversations between people happen. I'm always shocked, Paul, when I see the, the, the passport numbers in the States. I think we're at what, like 40% of Americans have a, have a passport. I don't even know what it is now after the pandemic, but how do you know what anything is or whether you're going to like something or not like it if you don't even try it? And if you never inter intersect or interact with a person from a completely different culture, there's no, no basis of figuring out whether you're going to appreciate it or not. I just think experience is the most important thing. I think travel is an incredibly important thing. I really hope to get back to to these territories, to China, Cuba, Russia, again in the future. Um, but it's it's hard to to see this happening, this fracturing happening. Um, but I think it's all about people, man. And I think it's about um, it's about using the art and the culture to to provide that that language for dialogue. Did you ever run into any dicey situations uh, with <laughs> minders, with security, with with government control? <laughs> I remember one time going into Cuba, right? So this is a great story. Um, so it, it was tough to get into Cuba because of all the uh, the transfers. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy. It's just a crazy place. And for anyone who's been to Cuba, you know, the, the, the airport in Havana is madness. So we got in maybe like 11, 1130 at night, something like this. And I brought in a second suitcase, which was filled with musical gear to bring to one of our guys down uh, down there because he's he's on the Parma team, Dairon Ortega, great guitar player, great producer. And I needed to bring him some stuff, mic stands, microphones, audio interface, this type of stuff. So I put it in the second suitcase. So I get off the plane, I'm exhausted. I have staff there, I have artists there. Everyone goes through security, but I got pulled aside because they wanted to take a look in the suitcase. So I'm there, I'm within, I, I, I'm, I'm visible to my staff which I think made everybody feel a lot more comfortable. And they're going through the suitcase and they're taking out all this musical gear. And they had a booklet. And this is at the airport, security guy at the airport. They had a booklet. It was yellowed and frayed, browned at the edges. It looked like it had been printed in like 1962. And it was what all the taxes were for all the various items that one would bring into the country, right? So he, he opens up the suitcase and he holds up the audio interface and he says, que es eso? You know, what is this? And I say, well, it's an audio interface. So they spend five minutes going through the booklet, trying to find an audio interface. And I try to explain, no, this isn't going to happen. Now, my Spanish is bad. My translator is on the other side of security. <laughs> I was there for, it was two hours of going through the, the whole thing. And when they got to the microphones, they said, what is this? And I said, these, you know, microphonos. And of course, they, they hear microphones, they think surveillance. The whole thing goes, goes sideways. Anyway, they tried to tax me uh, two, it was about 2000 US. And I had to talk them down 
to 200. It took me a while, but I did it. So I got that at 200. And when I finally said, okay, is enough? They said, wait, wait, hold on. 220. And I said, why? And the guy pointed to a dude who had been sitting over watching the whole thing, security guys for him, for him. I said, fine, 220. And, and we got out of there in one piece. But it was one of those moments where you say, am I getting out? Am I going to get arrested? What, what's going on? Um, so it happens from time to time. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great story. I, I like that. You know, there you go. People, people to people. That's, it's a new kind of diplomacy um, <laughs> in, uh, in, in Cuba. So um, uh, let's talk a little bit about your individual career. Now, I know that you're, you are very um, uh, careful not to mix your personal business with your work life. Uh, you have a band, Dreadnought, which is, has been hailed as an instrumental tour de force, as the country's best pure prog rock combo. So you've been playing in Dreadnought for 25 years. You've just released a solo, uh, a solo record um uh that you you played with i i think you played with dreadnought musicians but it's kind of a a solo record called playland arcade um it's it's a wild record uh prog rock and and orchestral and improvisation and retro stuff and 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 percussion recorded in Havana, Cuba. What's going on in your brain, Bob? Where do you come up with this stuff? And, uh, and, and talk a little bit about your individual career as a bassist and leader of, of a prog rock band called Dreadnought. Sure. Yeah. Well, like you said, band's 25 years. It's amazing. We need to stop and think how time flies that um, I've now been living more years playing in this band than I was alive before I started it. That's alarming. Um, but my solo record, yeah, at a certain point, Paul, I said, I, I really got to practice what I preach. I, I produce so many artists to talk about taking matter and matters into your own hands. I talk about all this stuff um, professionally. And I said, you know, I really should do something on my own. And actually, there, there are no members of Dreadnought on the record. It's it's basically just me and a couple of my, my, my pals, um, one of whom, his name is Jamie Perkins. He's a drummer for a band called The Pretty Reckless. Uh, and another guy named Duncan Watt, who's um, uh, in this neck of the woods, teaches down at Berkeley, wonderful uh, piano player and, and composer. And I said, you know, I also want to incorporate like not just rock stuff, but but jazz in orchestral. And I, I really wanted to have this kind of um, document of all these different sounds and colors that I enjoy so much. And I live down here right by Hampton Beach. I can walk down the strip. I take my whole staff out to play ski ball and get fried dough every summer, at least once a year. And I said, you know, I, I, I was walking through there one day and I'm like, oh, man. And, you, you know, you just hear something in your head and you're like, oh, that would be cool. And it just kind of spun out of that. And um, I'm really proud of the record. Like I said, it features some symphonic music. It features some just straight up prog rock, really weird experimental short pieces of music. And I did a cover of a piece by a guitar player named Dwayne Eddy. And uh, Dwayne Eddy, as many of you might know, is the Rebel Rouser. It was his hit back in the late 50s. He's a... Uh, one of the originators of really guitar rock and roll culture. Uh, one of the, the original mm -hmm. instrumental dudes. And to get the rights to it, um, to get the rights to actually to, to release it, we had to go through Dwayne himself. And I asked one of my, my pals to help me out because I couldn't find it in all the normal ways that you would go to get, uh, go to get the license. Like Paul, you know, as you know, Harry Fox, it's not up on Harry Fox. So we had to find and track down Dwayne Eddie down in Nashville. Got a hold of Dwayne. He gave it his blessing 
got on the phone with them, had a great time, realized we got a lot in common. So right now, one of my next projects is I'm writing a, um, a piece for guitar uh, for the great Dwayne Eddy. So that, that'll be, I hope, coming out sometime uh, later on this year. Whoa, wait yeah. a second. Is Dwayne Eddy's alive and playing? Alive and well, my friend. He is down in Nashville and he is great and doing well. I said, hey, listen, let's do something. He's like, I'd love that. So he's, uh, he's into it. We're going to do a little, a little track together. I've got it about halfway done right now. Well, that's really, that, that's, that's really cool. So, so, you know, you've been quoted as, as saying um, in some interview, you said, I'm a composer and performer by design, a producer and music executive by accident, but at the core of it all is my constant urge to expand the definition of creativity, of being an artist, of being a producer, of being a musician. That's a, that's a pretty expansive definition of what it means to be a musician and uh, to be alive and be creative. So what are you, what's in the future? What are you, what are you looking forward to? And uh, what keeps you getting up every day to do all the things you are doing, including now serving as the chair of the board of trustees of the beautiful music hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Yeah. You know, I was actually going to, was going to bring that up when you were asking this question, because it really does tie into all the, the things I said in that quote. And I guess if I could go back in time, I would tell the younger Bob when I was, you know, 12, <laughs> uh, there's a lot more ways to have an incredibly satisfying career in the arts, in business, in the music industry, and not be a rock star and not try to, just simply, you know, pound the pavement over and over and over again for um, for yourself as an artist. So I had this really expansive definition of what it means to be creative. And like my creativity is coming into play in a nice way, I think, at the music hall. I've been on the board for, uh, geez, eight, eight, nine years now. Um, I've been the music director of the Writers on a New England Stage series there for 16, 17, 16 years. And um and I have a different outlet now with this organization than I've had with anything else. It's a different type of oversight. It's not being the CEO of a company. It's not being the bass player in a band, but it is having influence on this incredible cultural institution that I think is, you know, central to our area, uh, our region. I think um, the, the greater Portsmouth uh, community. And I think it's a, a really genuinely important task and part of my day. Um, what's next for me? Still have some time left as the chair of the board. Um, what keeps me going with Parma is we just have an unbelievable amount of really cool new projects that um, that just keep coming through our world. There's a, a guy by the name of Rade Shirbeja, and he's a, a very well-known film actor that you've seen in Hollywood films. And uh, we got a great project with him coming out, Peter and the Wolf. Um, and like I said, a new project with Dwayne Eddy and uh, and hopefully some more great music with uh, with Dreadnought as I, as I move forward. So ton, tons in the future. Bob Lord, CEO of Parma Recordings, thank you for joining me on Capital Close-Up. This is Paul Hodes. And for Capital Close-Up, thanks to our sponsors and listeners. We'll be back next week.